Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It seems to me that the sexual perversion of our culture is spreading rapidly. Like most creeping evils, it was not checked. And now uh, uh, the racehorse runs along. As most of you know, we don't have a a television. But whenever we see one, even the commercials are enough to make a grown man blush. uh, Find yourself red-cheeked over an ivory soap commercial or something like that. Um, And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Our culture is aggressively uh, pushing for uh, the legalization of these gay marriages and so on. I don't suppose that you need me to make any long argument that these things are so. The thing that is uh, perhaps a bit more surprising and a bit more discouraging is that these things have have penetrated very deeply into Christendom. Uh, in our day and age, the, uh, the cases of the priests, homosexual and pedophile, are notorious, and they come up from time to time, neither few nor infrequent. Uh, it's almost as if once one has happened, you're just waiting for the next one. They act as if it's an anomaly. It is no anomaly. So it has been for a millennium and a half. And that's a long time. And that's a lot of precedent. I have been, uh, if that's old and long-standing in the world and no longer surprising, of course, our own experiences the sexual immorality and infidelity of a ruling elder in our midst and the way that that was mitigated and coddled by the Reformed. Shocking. Shocking. Not that such a thing might happen, but that but that we would excuse it, extenuate it, mitigate it, pass over it, Loving neither to the man, the family, nor anybody around him, not glorifying to God, nothing. And it makes you wonder uh, what sorts of things are happening uh, behind closed doors. And I've shared with you other uh, cases. I, I don't think that I need to try to convince you that the, um, that the condition is desperate and the acts are horrific. I think one of the reasons this spread has accelerated a, a problem that is somewhat new in the world uh, 
at least in some of its components. You remember uh, Solomon the Wise, as he was looking out his window, saw a young man lacking sense. And uh, this young man was lacking sense because he put himself in the way of temptation. He got up out of his house where he was safe and he wandered down the way of the strange woman. You see, he's, he's flirting with the danger. And Solomon says, don't do that. If you go by her house and you see her batting eyelashes and her ruby red lipstick and hear her smooth word, she's going to have you. But you see, that was a day and age in which, in most situations, you had to go looking for this trouble. And you had to flirt with it. Not anymore. Strange woman, come right to your house. Right into the uh, privacy of your uh, bedroom. Right onto your um, email. Sign-on screen and so on. Uh, I do know that for most of the years of my growing up, if you wanted to look at anything like that, you had to go to the disreputable part of the store. You know, or... And so there was a certain sort of, um, you had to be willing to bear a certain amount of reproach in order to involve yourself in any of those things. But it's not so anymore. The ease of access seems to be new. Like it's never been so easy in the history of the world to get yourself in this sort of trouble. Some In God's providence, some disturbing statistics came out uh, across my desk this week, just this week. How do they do these surveys? I don't know. So I don't know how to vouch for the accuracy of these things. The London School of Economics says that concerning young men from the age of 8 to 16, 90% will have viewed pornography on the Internet. 90%. 8 to 16. 90%. And then, this is probably not so surprising in that context, marketwire.com said that 50% of men are addicted to it. Half. Uh, Once having uh, walked near the snare, can't ever get away from it uh, again. So it's an old problem. But there's a new heightened temptation because of the easy availability and uh, the secrecy. And so we need to be very circumspect, very wise. Um, We need to keep ourselves clean and unspotted from the world, hating the very garment that is spotted by the flesh. And God's word provides direction for us. Lessons from his word and also lessons from the history that is, uh, um, that is prophesied here. So remember where we are. The Lord's outstretched arm has destroyed the Roman government of the West. Western Roman Empire has fallen to the barbarians. The Lord's outstretched arm has destroyed the East as well. It has fallen to uh, Islam. Christendom's response to these sore chastenings? Impenitence. Uh, 
And first it starts with uh, their first table, declensions. Their anti-Christianism in the worship of demons, their substitute mediators, and the gross idolatry that is attached to their cults. And as we've had occasion to observe, when the first table falls, what happens to the second? Uh, We have considered uh, murders, the persecution, bloodshed of true believers. Last week we considered the sorceries, all of the fraud that was involved in propping up this tottering religion with its falsehood and evident wickedness. And now we come to their fornications in verse 21. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications. Tonight, everyone speaks Greek. The Greek word is porneos. Anyone recognize it? That's where we have um, uh, derived that uh, species of words in our own language. In Greek, porneia could be any sort of illicit or unlawful sexual activity. So its um, its its primary definition is is pretty broad. Any sort of unlawful sexual activity. Uh, when you put it in a particular context, that particular context can give it also various shades of meaning. Sometimes, clearly, it is being treated as uh, properly speaking, adultery, that is, uh, unfaithfulness by one who's actually in a marriage covenant. Uh, Sometimes it is expressly differentiated from that. So uh, it would be, say, the inappropriate sexual activities of unmarried people and so on. But in our text, there is no limitation. So it's best to just take it in its general sense that... uh, the great apostasy would be characterized by illicit sexual activity. Well, in some ways, I feel like I don't have to do anything else. Uh, Most of you know the the history. If you've taken a, a Western Civ class, you probably know the history. Rome's harlotries are famous. We've already considered her spiritual whoredoms, but her carnal whoredoms were perhaps even more notorious even to the people of the time even for the people without the the spiritual sensitivities with respect to the first table issues natural conscience was constantly crying out against these things so uh, we're only going to be um, looking at a small sampling of these these things and I hope that you'll observe as we go along how once again Uh, The first table defections from the law and the sorceries are being constantly used to prop up things that are obviously contrary to natural conscience. So first, concerning the uh, clergy and the monks, uh, these were supposed to be people that were so pure that they didn't even need marriage, right? They're so holy. They are practically transcendent. They don't have any need of these things. Well, some evidence from their own councils. And I I read several writers that said, you want to know the age, you can pick up 
a sense of the age by reading their own writings and the things that they had to deal with in their councils. So let me give you just a small uh, sampling. The Council of Aquis Granum in 836. The monasteries of the young women in certain places rather appeal to be brothels than monasteries. Council of Paris in 829 mentions uh, the practice of concubinage among the clergy. So Rome is holy, right? And they don't want their their priests defiling themselves with God's ordinance of marriage. So you could take a concubine for a modest fee to your superior. Isn't that something? So we're too holy for that marriage business, but concubinage, that's fine, provided you've got the funds for such a thing. And this practice is going to spread, develop, and flower from uh, the 800s onward among the among the clergy. Um, so that's just some evidence from their own councils. A lot of the root of a lot of this was the enforced celibacy upon people who were clearly not called by the Lord to a single life. And this was something that was prophesied concerning the great apostasy. Let me just read to you the words from 1 Timothy. You you know them well by this point, I hope. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons, if you remember our exposition. The doctrines concerning uh, deified mortals. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Um, So they end up um, denying God's remedy and the proper use of... um, of human sexuality, the denial of that and the fruit of it was rampant wickedness. If you remember when we studied the uh, the ends of marriage, God's purposes in marriage, um, one of the things, as the Westminster Divines say, was to prevent uncleanness. Well, they cast God's remedy to the side, and it's not surprising to find that they stumble and fall into this. So... Um, Concerning the the fruits of this enforced celibacy, uh, some 15th century Roman testimony from the Council of Constance, at which um, uh, Jerome of Prague and John of Huss were condemned. John Huss. So Gerson, who was one of the famous orators of of Constance, and a Roman Catholic, so this is their own assessment, because Constance was not only meant to condemn the Hussites, but also it was to be a reforming council. We've got to clean up this this mess. This stinks to the sky and everybody knows it. Uh, so uh, Gerson called the nunneries brothels of harlots. And a, a contemporary, Clamangus, who was a, a French theologian of the Sorbonne, said this. What else are the monasteries of our young women at this time but certain 
I dare not say sanctuaries of God, but execrable brothels of Venus. So that the veiling of a young woman today is the same thing as to expose her to public harlotry. The veiling is the, the language of making her a nun. Since making her a nun is the same thing as to expose her as a public harlot. Isn't that something? And these these are Catholics. These are not reformers pounding them down or something like that. This is their own testimony uh, concerning these things. So in addition to the enforced celibacy, another one of the institutions that led to so much uh, difficulty was first their practice and then later the institutional institutionalization of what was known as auricular confession, confession to the ear of uh, the priest. It actually wasn't, didn't become mandatory until 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council, but it, it had been practiced for centuries earlier. I want you to imagine, you don't have to be very clever in the ways of human beings to know. So here's the idea. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, you need to confess them, all of them, the outside ones and the inside ones. Now, you've got a celibate priest. You're going to set him in a room. And now you're going to take all of the young women from his parish and you're going to parade them through that room one after the other. And they're going to confess to him what they've done as well as their secret thoughts, desires, passions, and so on. And you can imagine what the end result of this institution was. Uh, Gross immorality. And it became a part of priestcraft to learn how to manipulate women in these uh, confessional uh, situations. And some of the, um, the reports concerning these things are, are just things that ought not to be mentioned in public. But you can see the, the problem, and you don't have to be a genius in human nature to know that this is going to be uh, a problem. As I have frequently observed throughout these, uh, the language of they repented not tells you something about what they had done before, and also what they do after, because they won't change concerning these things. Let me take my next um, evidence from the Pope shortly after the fall of Constantinople. Innocent the Eighth, the Holy Father, the year is 1484. This little poem was written about him. I wish I could reproduce it as elegantly and eloquently in Latin as it fall, in English, as it falls out in Latin. But this is the description of Innocent VIII. The noxious man begat eight boys and as many girls. Rightly was Rome able to call him father. <laughs> yeah, it, it's even better in, in Latin, the, the rhythm and so on, the word, the word play, but that captures uh, the sense of it. Um, and again, this is an epigram written at the time. This is, these things were notorious. And this is the Holy Father. This is the Pope. His successor, Alexander VI, um, was a monster. Just a monstrous, dissolute, disgusting fellow. Just to give you a little snapshot of the lesser enormities. Uh, 
So here he's, he's celibate, right? He celebrated the marriage of one of his daughters publicly. So much for celibacy. <laughs> but he celebrated the marriage of one of his daughters with another one of his mistresses being present while the festivities were enlivened by indecent sto- songs, revelries, and plays. This is the Pope of, or the, the court of the Pope as you get toward the year 1500. And you can see why Luther just a few years later would say, and he went as a devout Augustinian monk, and he would say, Rome is an open sewer. I thought I was going to the holy city. What was what was that? Well, Alexander the Sixth character was imitated throughout Rome by the clergy. As I mentioned earlier, and now you're some seven hundred years removed from the earlier evidence. But ecclesiastics kept mistresses. They simply were required to pay an ecclesiastical tax for the privilege of doing that. And with any illegitimate, there's an additional tax for any illegitimate children you you produced. And of course, the convents in Rome were all houses of ill repute. This is just the clergy. The immorality among the common people could be uh, just as bad. And interestingly enough, uh, um, and I hope that you've been observing all along how the how the religion itself is propping up, fostering a lot of this gross immorality. But just to give you some, some idea, uh, what was the effect of the indulgences on the common people? Your ability to buy forgiveness for a few coins. And interestingly enough, uh, the the merit of the saints, that is all of these, all of these centuries worth of monks, nuns, and clerics, doesn't look like they'd have extra merit to me, does it look like it to you? But here you've got this fiction about this treasury of merits, and these monks and nuns are just filling it up with all of their good works, and you're going to be able to tap in to that for a modest fee. And so um, men buy forgiveness for these sorts of sins quite inexpensively. I would give you some of the numbers. I, I just don't understand the coinage, but I'm well assured that it was cheap. So you could you could do these things and know that afterwards you just pay a tax, basically, and be forgiven, absolved for these things. This was part of Wycliffe's complaint Wycliffe uh, said, these indulgences, instead of causing men to dread sin, encourage them to wallow therein like hogs. Um, And that's what it was producing among the the common people. You might think, well, you know, what about about some of these penances for sin? Certainly these things turn people off from, from sin. One of the ways you could do penance for your, your sins, if you've gotten yourself into some trouble and you want to make reparation in the eyes of Rome, you could take a pilgrimage to a saint shrine. The problem? These pilgrimages were enjoined upon men and women alike who are now separated from their homes and their families and they became de- dens of iniquity. So here they go on pilgrimages to be forgiven of their sins to the, to the shrines of the holy to be ministered to by the clergy and monks and so on. 
And these became sites of gross immorality. Uh, Apollo's temple prostitution never saw the like of this. So, um, most of you probably already had a sense of this sort of thing going on in the Middle Ages, and you don't have to read very much church history for this to be writ large upon the face of it. Only thing to say by way of conclusion is that if you want to understand what stimulated the Reformation, as I mentioned before, false religion, there will always be something about it that's offensive to man, his intellect or his natural conscience, something that's crying out against it, it's absurd or it's evil. But then um, frequently the... the uh, the religion itself will have components, um, its sorceries to prop it back up and make it seem plausible. When uh, And so, um, but, but these immoralities were so offensive that it was constantly crying out for reformation. And so you saw inside and outside of the church all the time, constant reformation movements. These things have to be cleaned up. These things have to be cleaned up. Even people who didn't understand their religious components knew that this was evil. This is evil. And uh, second, they haven't repented. They, uh, these things have gone behind a cloak, but uh, they still break out into the light from time to time. And I, I think probably everybody knows that Rome's policy is to try to cover them up. Don't reveal them to the civil authorities. We deal with those things in-house. And so everything gets clean, gets covered up. And so how much is being covered up at any given time? Who can say how much they're getting away with? But it does come out from time to time in spite of themselves. My doctrine tonight is that fornication ought not even to be named among a Christian people. Um, I frame the doctrine in this way. I know it's strong language, but if you consider our historical demonstration, this sin, I, I don't know exactly why, but this sin in particular, for whatever reason, seems very plain to natural conscience. In other words, even if people are confused about the wrongness of a great many other things, Frequently they know that this is bad, this is gross, this is immoral, and so on. And so this this sin um, has a great tendency because of that um, because of that movement of the conscience, really to obscure God's glory in the midst of a Christian people. If it crops up, it it's devastating uh, in the eyes of a of a lost and and dying world. But Paul says this, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. In other words, uh, Paul says that we ought to be so clear from these things that they never really come up in our midst. You know, they, These ought to be the things that we view in the worldlings. 
They ought not to be happening uh, in our midst. So um, I want to do something that I don't normally do. In your outline, you have larger catechism 138. My habit is to, to treat things in a lot of depth. Here I want to give you a display of tools and remedies uh, and display rather than one tool at great depth, uh, many tools, but because many, not, not anyone at, at much depth. And I hope that you'll give some thought to these things. What, what things here might be, might be helpful to me? Because it's, it's, it's important that we fight this battle at the right place. And the place for this battle to be fought is at the mind and the heart. If you lose there, there's going to be big trouble. So we need to fight it there. And we need tools in order to do it. So what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? That is, thou shalt not commit adultery. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. So that would be the duty to yourself in the seventh commandment. Chastity is, a, is an old-fashioned word. It basically means, well, the... Um, sort of the opposite of fornication. It's uh, purity in these regard, or, or the right use of these things. Yeah. And the papists always said that um, the, the concupiscence of the heart was not properly sinful. And that's part of what um, the reformers are denying here, is that it's not just what you do with your body and your behavior or your words, but your mind and your affections. And if you understand me, that's the place where we must fight and where we must prevail. But this is the duty to self, chastity, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Um, So um, this would be our, our duty to others. So even as we're minding our own chastity, we need to be minding the chastity of the people that are uh, around us. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Hebrews 10, 24. And of course, um, the Lord Jesus' famous uh, prohibitions against casting stumbling blocks and so on. We don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else, even as we're minding our own chastity. So then they go on and they begin to give us, so that's the big duty, that's the goal, chastity for the self and for others, and then they begin to give the tools, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 31. To set Job 31 in its context, do you remember that the reasoning of Job's friends has been something along this, these lines? Um, uh, and I, I hope you'll detect the logical fallacy. God punishes the wicked. You are being punished, therefore you are wicked. 
We can't say exactly how you've been wicked, but you must have been very wicked because your affliction is severe. And so they even uh, uh, speculate about immorality in, in Job and these sorts of things. Uh, a fallacious argument, if ever there was one. But Job's, Job's protestation here, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Notice here that, uh, that Job purposes to fight this particular sin at its root. Uh, in other words, he doesn't just make a, um, make a covenant with his body, you know, to stay away from a woman or something like that, but he makes a covenant with his eyes uh, to, to guard the gate to the mind, as it were, so that he won't find himself thinking upon a maid. And he will fight there. And uh, Job is, is a spiritual warrior. He's going to fight with the heavy artillery. He actually makes a vow. Uh, here described as a covenant that he makes with his eyes. Uh, I do think, um, and from time to time when people have had, had trouble with this in particular, you remember it's in, it's in the setting of seventh commandment sins in particular that the Lord Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, of course, nobody believes that that's to be taken literally, but what he what he's saying is, uh, some sins are only beaten by radical, extreme methods. And uh, if I might say so, Job takes one here. Um, he'll take up a, a vow and um, he'll call upon the great God of heaven, the searcher of hearts, to judge his sincerity and to punish him if he doesn't do it. And he picks up with this thought in, in verse 9. And he protests his innocence. And there's an allusion here to the curse that he had pronounced upon himself as part of his vow. If he, uh, if he hadn't been faithful in this regard. He says, if mine heart have been deceived by a woman. Or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind unto another. And let others bow down upon her. And um, you think, does, does that mean what it sounds like it means? And the answer to that is yes. He's saying what you think he's saying. And that's the, the curse that he's pronounced upon himself should he uh, break his vow. So he's protesting, I've kept my vow. And uh, if I haven't, uh, let the, this awful consequence come upon me. Interestingly enough, another thing that nobody believes anymore. And remember that Job is not a Jew, and he's not post-Moses. He is a Gentile. For this, adultery, is a heinous crime, yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. The magistrates ought to punish this, if it were so. You could wish that our magistrates cared about such a thing. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction and would root out all mine increase. So um, I think that we learn great lessons. I'd encourage you if you've, if you've had struggles 
and probably most everybody will have some struggle, especially men have some struggle with this from time to time. When you do, remember Job 31. Go back, uh, draw wisdom from it, and draw um, strength from it as you feed upon Christ in his, in his word. There's much here uh, for the soul to help. The next remedies are, are also interesting. And again, we're a mile wide and an inch deep here, and I apologize for that, but uh, I did want to set many tools in front of you for your own use and, and further contemplation and exploration. The next remedy is temperance. You don't hear too much about this anymore. And of course, temperance in a general way is commended to us in the Bible. But um, Christians for centuries and centuries and centuries believed that moderation and sensibility in eating and drinking, sleeping, exercising, and recreating, that moderation in these things helped to keep the passions in check. Whereas, um, and I think that they, they were able to prove it more easily from the con- contrary, what happened at feasts and revelries and all of these things where people were immoderate, all of that indulgence <coughs> tended toward grosser forms of uh, sensuality. And so they commend to us temperance, moderation in food, drink, sleep, recreation, uh, whatever. And all of these things will put the body, one of, each one of these things is a good discipline of its own and teaches discipline. But they also believe to put the body in, in the proper frame, um, a good state of health for resisting these sorts of things. Good health. The keeping of chaste company and this is um, this is good advice for everyone uh, but especially for young people uh, one of the um, top three reasons for the ruin of young people in the in the proverbs is bad company in youth and uh, unchaste company is likely to uh, get us into trouble for obvious reasons. They're not looking after their chastity, and they're certainly not looking after ours. And this is uh, a recipe for trouble. And now they go on. Marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. This is a pretty direct shot at one of the great failings of Rome. Obviously, all of these men had not been peculiarly gifted by the Spirit to take up a single life. The event shows that you have misunderstood your calling. You haven't been able to walk in that path of um, uh, singleness. And so when, um, when someone doesn't have the, the gift, as we talked about in our, our sermons on marriage, uh, our our the sexual part of our nature is not evil. It's good. We were created this way by God on purpose and he declared it all very good. Of course, in the fall, it has gone horribly wrong, but we do not want to deny what God has said about it in principle, and that is that it is good. And so if you find some inclination uh, in yourself in this direction, then Marriage is the remedy that God has prepared. And so we 
parents and young people ought to uh, seek marriage if it's pretty clear that single life is is not for you. Um, although I should say this, if I might just say this in passing, I, sometimes I think marriage is, the call to marriage is is so much more common than the call to singleness that a lot of times uh, people don't even consider singleness. It's almost like I just grow up and I get married and that's what I do. I I hope that uh, as you grow up, young people, you will think about, at least consider, uh, the call to the single life and so on. You might end up, for obvious reasons, discarding it pretty early, but but it is something that ought to be considered in, in the right uh, in the right uh, season. So anyway, um, think on those things. Uh, Paul once once commended it in view of the coming troubles. We might have some coming troubles our, ourselves. And so he goes on, um, in the context of that marriage, conjugal love and cohabitation. The cohabitation is simply the dwelling together. Great advice for men. Uh, when you are finished working, go home. And simply going home and being at home with your family will keep you out of worlds of trouble. I, um, uh, you know, listening to the radio, hearing athletes talk, athletes that have failed in these regards, other athletes that have managed to keep themselves uh, out of trouble. And one of the things that you'll find almost universally among the young men that have kept themselves out of trouble and for really, really young men, like 20, who have lots and lots of money and like six months off, this is a recipe for trouble. And you think, well, how are they, how do they escape? And most of those young men will tell you, I go home at 10 o'clock. Go home. That's it. <laughs> 10 o'clock, the night's over and I go home. Most of the athletes you'll find getting in trouble at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and so on. So uh, I wanted to make a, a an appeal for cohabitation. It's something that I, I learned from my own father. He's not, uh, not a believer, but he never wanted to go out and hang out with the guys, never wanted to go home, go to the pub, or anything. just always come home when he was, when he was finished uh, working. And I, I've been very happy to have that example. And then uh, conjugal love. Uh, in the context of marriage, the marriage bed is not to be neglected. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. So they're not to, uh, the exhortation there is not to neglect uh, 
the marriage bed. And it's a it's a very peculiar expression. We've talked about it before. It's a benevolence or a kindness that is rendered one to another, but it's also characterized as uh, due as part of uh, the covenant that has been contracted between between the parties. And he goes on, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. I think it's it's plain enough. If it's a due benevolence, the denial of it is a defrauding. And he says not to do that. And the only situation in which that's to be done is by mutual consent for a season. And it would be one of the things from which we fast during fasting times. Again, once, uh, once again, if we're supposed to be... Um, humbling ourselves, humiliating ourselves, afflicting ourselves to get ourselves in the proper frame for a particular kind of prayer. Um, This is not very conducive to uh, that sort of self-affliction, but rather the rejoicing of the heart. So there can be seasons when uh, a husband and wife will agree to put this away, to put themselves uh, in the proper frame for spiritual exercises. And the apostle, or I'm sorry, the divines press on. We're to be diligent in the labor of our callings. This has become uh, proverbial among English speakers. Idle hands are what? The devil's workshop. So one of the things that they um, that they commend here is stay busy, do your work. Uh, you remember how David got himself in trouble during the time when the kings would go out to war. David didn't. He was idle at his home, and he got himself into trouble with uh, Bathsheba. I would recommend that if you go on the internet, you go on the internet not to surf, but with specific business in mind. You do your business, and you get off. Let's not be idle in the midst of the uh, temptations. And they go on to say, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Uh, Fornication. This is one of the few fights that is best won by running away. You want to win this battle, flee from it. (coughs) <coughs> you might think of uh, old Joseph with Potiphar's wife just run away you remember Timothy was a young minister of the gospel and uh, Paul tells him flee uh, flee youthful lusts but rather follow righteousness Faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you get the putting off and the putting on. Uh, 
We need to flee from useful lusts. Turn around and run away from them. That's how you win this fight. You don't go toe-to-toe with this bully. You turn tail and run away. And in that there is safety. But instead we put on the following or the pursuit of... It's interesting. So while you're running away from your youthful lusts, you are running into a path of pursuit to righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. May the Lord grant us uh, grace to make uh, good use of these means and then add his blessing to these means so that this uh, sin would not be named among us. Let us pray together.